1: Hello, and welcome to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, also known as Schumpeter, for my column on the business of doing business. And I've seized the Money Talks mic again to turn our gaze back over the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of the past 12 months. 2021 did not, despite our best hopes, bring an end to the pandemic. And as the year rolls around, we once again face a surging viral threat. But for all the suffering and destruction that COVID-19 has caused, our hope has been sustained by the many heroic human efforts of innovation, entrepreneurship and dynamism that Money Talks celebrates. We've met Nobel Prize winners, VC venturers and kings of crypto, delved back into the history of everything from QE to grocery shopping and explored the future of international travel, of banking and of money itself. Now, I'm reliably informed that anytime my producer utters the word quiz, my colleagues run a mile. So with the assurance that this will absolutely not be a quiz, we've managed to coax and cajole three of the economist's finest to join our merry band. First, The Money Talk's host with the most, Rachna Shambhog, our finance editor, who has relinquished her seat and consented to being on the other side of the mic today. Bravo, Rachna!
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Henry, but I don't believe you and the producer. It's absolutely a quiz.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll see about that. I'm back by popular demand, our U.S. economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. How are things in D.C.?
3: Uh, things are well, but I think it'd be more accurate to say that I'm back as the sacrificial lamb. Do not <laughs> cross-check my predictions from last year, please.
1: <laughs> and making his Money Talks unquizzed debut, our Asia business and finance editor, Mike Bird, in Hong Kong. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Henry. Not too nervous, I hope?
4: No, of course I'm not nervous because it isn't a quiz, so there's nothing to feel (laughs) nervous about. I'm obviously very, very relaxed.
1: Okay, now, I can think of a lot of words to describe 2021. Not all of them flattering, but it's always good to expand one's vocabulary. So to start us off, I would like to hear your words of the year, please. What word, phrase or name most captures the zeitgeist of 2021, wherever you are? Simon, can we start with you? You moved not just countries, but whole economic systems this year. How's that been?
3: Uh, Well, it's not advisable to move during a pandemic, I would say. But it's certainly been interesting to go from one side of China-U.S. tensions. I had been based in Shanghai to the other side now that I'm based in Washington, D.C. You know, in fact, despite all of the the China news, which continues to to dominate much of the agenda here, without a doubt, the word of the year was transitory. Okay, transitory. I'm sure you will have heard it uh, potentially ad nauseum. Uh, It was popularized by the Federal Reserve, but it was a really commonplace description used by economists trying to kind of wrap their heads around the inflationary episode globally, Um, but but especially in the United States. You know, inflation in November was nearly 7% year on year. And for much of the year, the idea was that this inflation was ephemeral. It reflected all of the crazy dislocations Coming from the recovery from the pandemic. Of course, what's happened in the last couple of months is that inflation has proven to be much more persistent. It's also proven to be a lot broader, spreading into things like rents, uh, wages as well. Uh, And so, famously, last month, at least famously for econ nerds, uh, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, said it was time to retire the word. But to a certain extent, I think the jury is still out, which is that, you know, clearly, you know, if you define transitory as a two or three month thing, uh, that was not the correct definition of inflation. You know, if, however, we get to an economy looking more normal next year, you know, it could well be that a lot of what has been bringing heat to inflation will begin to cool down. Um, so that, for me, is the, the word of the year, without a doubt.
1: Rachana, Transitory has been filling your pages as you edited the finance section this year. So what's the word that's been ringing in your ears?
2: Well, I have to say that the most striking sort of phrase that I came across this year has been DeFi, decentralised finance. This is the utterly kind of bonkers, disorientating idea that you could build a financial world on top of blockchains, that you have no need for middlemen, no need for intermediaries or regulators that, you know, financial operations can work purely on the basis of so-called smart contracts that are built on blockchains.
1: And The Economist itself has even thrown itself into the DeFi world, hasn't it?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, this was this was an utterly, utterly bonkers week. I, I actually had COVID that week. So all I was doing was sitting there watching our uh, auction um, of uh, our own kind of non-fungible token that we created uh, of one of our covers. Alice from Alice in Wonderland, kind of at the edge of the rabbit hole, just about to leap into this crazy world. We put it up for auction. 24 hours later, it had sold for 99.9 Ether, which at the time was about $420,000. So it was um, <laughs> utterly sort of bewildering week.
1: Fantastic. Um, Mike, DeFi, is that big where you
4: are? It's pretty big. Hong Kong's pretty big into crypto in general, um, and I think you got a lot of early crypto development out of Japan as well. Yeah, and up until relatively recently, obviously you had a huge amount of um, mining going on. I mean, there's that's more sort of basic cryptocurrency in China until that was all very unceremoniously halted. Yeah, so a lot going on out here with that as well.
1: So what in Hong Kong and Asia at large, which I guess is your whole beat What's the word of the year out there?
4: The word of the year that I've chosen is Evergrande, or as some people will pronounce it when they're coming to the story for the first time, Evergrande. <laughs> um, not Evergrande, Evergrande. It is uh, China's biggest property company by sales, and it has been for a while, and it is one of the most sort of fantastical and ridiculous Financial stories of the past decade or so. One of the bits of advice I got when I moved out to Asia was don't become obsessed with Evergrande. Don't become obsessed with the Chinese property companies. You will look at the financials and you will say it's all about to collapse and then it will never collapse. This has been a bugbear for a great many financial journalists and hedge funds and short sellers since long before I moved here. Um, there's a guy called Andrew Left, who's a short seller, who's actually banned from. Uh, from market participation in Hong Kong for five years because he said Evergrande was insolvent. Um, He said that back in 2012, and he was banned from market conduct in Hong Kong in 2016 for five years. So he he is actually now unbanned again, just in time for Evergrande's unceremonious total collapse. Um, It finally, the rubber hit the road. They finally defaulted. They essentially had a business model based on borrowing enormous amounts and trying to run ahead of that by selling more and more housing at lower and lower prices, especially through the last 18 months, and more and more aggressively. And yes, it's all finally come to a rather sort of crazy end.
1: And what's the, what's the impact of that in in China at large? I mean, we were, I guess, expecting some kind of repercussions on the Chinese economy. Have
4: they happened? Well, I think they're happening to some extent. You've seen this broader squeeze on the property sector in general. I think the main way to look at it is that household wealth in China is just overwhelming. Wealth everywhere is it's, its overwhelmingly concentrated in real estate. Even when you get into the financial side of the economy, the assets that people own, a lot of that eventually comes down to some real estate holding anyway, right? So I think that the way that it affects the Chinese economy, and the main point of coming back is if people start to think that the that the model doesn't work anymore, this crazy, heavily indebted, relentless real estate development, that it can all fall apart fairly quickly, I think. If people start to think that the assets that they own aren't worth what they believe they are, then yeah, that I think is the major risk. Um, you started to see that a little bit, but we're not quite clear whether it gets uh, really substantially more serious than that.
1: I mean, I guess, Mike, you could say that there is another word of the year that begins with the word ever, not just ever grand, but ever given, the ship that got stuck in the uh, in the Suez Canal earlier on this year and became the butt of every meme for days on end.
4: Absolutely. I feel that was very much the, the sort of fun end of the supply <laughs> chain disruption stuff. That was back early in the year when it was all, all a sort of bit of a joke, a bit of, oh, aren't, there, aren't we having a little bit of delays getting things, before it became a sort of massive issue where we're going to have to hike interest rates to... Fix supply chains and all of that. It was the enjoyable end of the spectrum as far as things went.
2: So is that your word of the year, Henry?
1: Nope. My word of the year is the metaverse. I think it was one of those words that only your true sci-fi buff would have known about beforehand. It was mentioned in this novel by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash, which everyone claims to have read, but I'm afraid I never did. It basically became common currency in the last quarter of the year, especially when Mark Zuckerberg, sometimes dressed as a gauche-looking avatar, announced that uh, his company was going to change its name from Facebook to Meta, or at least the holding company, and that it was going to devote $10 billion this year, a whopping sum really, to building out its kind of metaverse dreams. I think the best way to view it is to read this book, Ready Player One, which is set in 2025, and it provides a pretty good analogy. Uh, It basically describes the metaverse as a place where you escape from the miseries of everyday life in a world of kind of climate change, energy shortages and everything by cranking up your PC putting on your haptic suit and entering the oasis, which is like a parallel universe where you can change your identity and work and uh, hang out and even fall in love. That's the best depiction of the metaverse that I've seen. Um, actually, it's probably far more prosaic than that. To start off with, we'll see it more in the workplace to make Things like Zoom calls and whatever a bit more immersive and perhaps you'll see it in factories as well where companies will create digital twins through the metaverse using, again, 3D technology and that sort of thing. Anyway, are you guys going to be putting on your VR headsets this holidays?
4: I, I suspect you're right and that eventually we're going to be putting on our VR headsets to dial into the weekly editorial meetings and my employers will be able to see whether I'm sort of nodding off through the conversation, uh, which which they cannot now, and I'm not looking forward to
2: that. I still feel like a metaverse sceptic, I have to say. I still don't quite see the point of it. Well,
1: read Ready Player One. Go on and uh, see if that changes your mind. Now, I did assure you all that this would not, in fact, be a quiz. But, as you probably suspected, I lied. It's time for your Numbers of the Year. I want to hear the statistic or the figure that made you do a double take and think, can that really be right? Just say the number, give us a suitably obscure clue and see if the rest of us can guess the story behind the stat. So let me start us off. My number of the year is 140 million square feet. And my clue is... Brings smiles to people, but not to
3: unions. That Amazon warehouse space in America. Oh, my Brilliant. God. There you That's very go. go. impressive. Are
1: hot. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is Amazon warehouse space in America. It's actually the number of square feet that Amazon has built in terms of warehousing or is building in terms of warehousing over the last two years. And it is the same amount that Walmart has created in 59 years. Yes, ridiculous. So it is a whopping amount of space. And it just shows right through the pandemic how Amazon is using its strength in logistics to get closer to us and to just become even more indomitable, I guess, in the e-commerce space. So Rachana... How about you? Go on, make it a difficult one.
2: My number is 3,120%. And by cryptic clue, which I have to admit, I hadn't really prepared, so I've come up with it on the hoof, is end of play.
3: Appreciation of Dogecoin.
2: <laughs> well, you're not that far off.
3: Oh, AMC stock?
2: You're getting warmer.
4: Wait, is it Game GameStop? Or... yeah? There we, go. there we go. To the Game peak, software. it
2: went up to about $483, the stock, uh-huh. and that's about over 3,000%. <laughs> Another point in the year, I mean, quite early on, wasn't it? It was January or February, where we sat there going, what is happening? <laughs> um, just a phenomenal increase in a, in a matter of days um, with the sort of, army of retail investors, keen readers of Reddit forums, decided to buy stock in a bricks and mortar games retailer called GameStop. Completely shocked the financial establishment. And just, yeah, it was just a stunning story of of the kind of might of retail investors.
4: I think the amazing thing with this story is how it didn't, really go down i I mean it came it came back down off the sort of ridiculous four hundred dollar high I mean all the highs are ridiculous, but like it trades at what one hundred and fifty dollars a share now it was like four or five dollars for most of like 2020, 2019 The fact that this has managed to sort of stay bid at those levels for the entire year beyond just a few days of of craziness is is pretty amazing to me um it 's sort of one in the eye it 's not been a good year for efficient markets, people basically.
1: Why don't you tell us what your number of
4: the year is? So my number of the year is ten thousand three hundred and seventy-seven US dollars. The clue I will give you is chassis.
2: Ooh, I wanted to say shipping rates. Is it something like that?
4: It is something like that. Uh, it is the average price of a forty-foot container. Sent by ship, it's by a consultancy called Drury, and it's uh, it's an aggregate of a number of different routes. That is the peak that was reached in mid September, which I think was triple the level that it was at the same time last year, and even you know late last year that those levels had already gone up quite a lot. So I think the normal level is sort of sub two thousand dollars, or the pre-pandemic level. Maybe maybe this is the new normal, and the the chassis refers to the fact that. A big part of the reason that things are still sort of snarled up is the fact that you have all these empty containers sitting on the chassis in the, you know, the Port of Los Angeles. And yeah, this is the main source of the the squeeze at the moment. So Simon, did your freight make it to the US from Shanghai?
3: Amazingly, it did. And, and frankly, I should have been able to get Mike's clue because I was somebody who was unfortunately having to book it, not a 40-foot container, but a 20-foot container back in July. And it was, you know... Speaking of to the moon, GameStop, it was it was to the moon expensive, but amazingly, you know, I think I think one of the stories of the year is that for all of the supply chain problems, all of the incredibly expensive shipping costs, etc., uh, is how resilient global supply chains ultimately have proved to be. I mean, they've been tested dramatically. Uh, And, you know, as I can personally attest, things took a little bit longer and cost a little bit more. But at the end of the day, you know, our stuff arrived at our door.
1: Well, that's great. We're happy for you. (laughs) Uh, So what what is your number of the year?
3: My number of the year is three trillion. And my clue uh, is that this ties back to my former beat, but it also ties to my current beat,
2: household spending or spending on goods in america
3: mm.
2: no
4: is this a money supply thing in some way no
3: rachna is closer this is definitively a, a quote-unquote real economy hey. number. oh is this ch- something to do with china tr-
1: china trade china u.s trade yes
3: all right Henry, chinese I'll... exports uh-huh. yeah. yes <laughs> these are total chinese exports up nearly one-third compared to 2020 for the first time ever they'll be north of three trillion dollars and I just think it's it's a phenomenal number uh, in many respects if you think about you know one the pandemic for you know factory managers with huge operations in China and suppliers in China not to having been able to visit them for two years and yet still sourcing so much um, out of the country plus of course we're multiple years now into the u.s trade war, uh, tariffs leveled against China, uh, and yet U.S. imports from China are are at record levels. It seems kind of unthinkable, but China's share of global export market has has increased, gone up to about 20% now from from 15% before the pandemic. And then I think one of the striking things is how sophisticated the exports have grown to the point that China has now become a really, really important export hub uh, for Teslas. So if you see a new Tesla Model 3 driving around the European roads, odds are that was manufactured in China. So that for me is is a number of the year. And of course, it ties into Evergrande as well, because I think one of the reasons that China has been confident about you know, cracking down on its property sector uh, is knowing that it has external demand as such an important crutch that it can lean on.
1: Thank you all. We'll be back in a minute when it's going to get even more fiendishly cryptic. But first, it is the absolute best time of the year to become an Economist subscriber because it is Christmas double issue time. The current issue of The Economist is bursting with extraordinary, important and beautiful stories, long reads and essays from my colleagues around the world. If you haven't been promised one in your stocking already, the bumper double issue is on all good newsstands and online at economist.com. And our gift to you is a special offer for Money Talks listeners at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Right, folks, it's time for round three. And I hope you've all done your homework because it's time for show and tell. It's the mystery item round. I've asked each of you to bring along an extremely mundane household item that provides a clue to something that happened in 2021. So Rachna, can you start us off? What have you bought for us?
2: Sure. So I've got a packet of... Tyrrell's hand cooked vegetable crisps. But sadly, it's empty. There's nothing in here.
0: Hmm.
2: Anything?
3: Mm-mm. Um, are these Brexit related shortages on grocery shelves? Oh, <laughs> yes.
2: Well, there are actually two correct answers to my clue. One of them is that yes, there were shortages of crisp potato crisps <laughs> on the supermarket shelves in Britain. But I was actually hoping to solicit the second answer. And it might help to note that British crisps are known as chips in America.
3: Semiconductor shortages. Very, yes, very exactly. good. Oh, very good. Very
1: good. Well done. Well done, Simon too. What's your mystery item?
3: I have to admit, I did go out to buy this specially for the show. (laughs) We are looking at a large ruby red bottle of ocean spray cranberry juice. And the clue is an image of this was very expensive this year.
2: Hmm. Oh, was it a non-fungible token?
3: You're getting very warm. You're very good at this, Rachana.
2: Well, I'm, I'm glad that editing the finance section week in, week out has some benefits, but I don't think I'm actually getting any nearer to the... You know
3: what, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you because it is somewhat unfair. It was a picture, uh, a drawing of cranberry juice was one of the 5,000 frames that appeared in the NFT every days. the first 5,000 days uh, by the artist? Does does uh, this is the bonus question? Anybody remember the name of the artist? People, people, and sold good, for $69 dollars, million, million or something. Exactly, like that, yes. exactly. Wow, Rachana, you definitely get you definitely <laughs> get full time. points for this. <laughs> people, otherwise known as Mike Winkleman, uh, auctioned at Christie's for sixty nine point three million dollars, puts him uh, in a stratosphere of living artists, accompanied only by David Hockney and Jeff Koons. Art critics, I think, were one amazed at the potential of nfts uh, but two quite aghast when you actually looked at the individual frames a lot of kind of quite puerile images a lot of not very impressive drawings the the cranberry juice was was talked about a little bit because he did a, a a drawing that was based on a tiktok meme of somebody skateboarding with a bottle of cranberry juice um so not not the most interesting art if you look at it on a frame by frame basis but of course the sum was was clearly greater than the parts <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay Mike your mystery item what is it
4: so this will maybe not be familiar to many people but this is something that exists in a lot of places here it's a it's an octopus card uh, it's for the the Hong Kong MTR for the Metro so it's the equivalent of an oyster card or um, you know same sort of thing in many other places. The main clue I guess is that this is obviously for, for loading money onto.
1: Oh, so is this something to do with fintech?
3: Not quite or something no. like that. Could it be the advent of universal ID money slash vaccine passport cards? No, that's not that's not quite right.
2: It's programmable money, is that it? It's stimulus money on cards that were issued in Hong Kong? Yes, yes,
4: absolutely. So this is, it was issued in Hong Kong, but I think this was the year as well that globally this became a much bigger deal. We've seen the sort of minor experiments with this stuff before, particularly in, in Japan. You've seen, you know, just drops of money to consumers. Hong Kong was one of the places that gave people lump sums of cash throughout the year, um, you know, dropped onto, among other things, their octopus cards, I didn't get any because I'm not a permanent resident of Hong Kong and we were cruelly excluded from the plan. (laughs) Um, I have friends that got both the Hong Kong money and also U.S. stimulus as well. Uh, I have friends that got both Hong Kong and Japanese stimulus. Some people have done very well from this. But yeah, I feel like with the the sort of checks going out in the U.S. as well, this was the the year that just dropping cash to people as a stimulus effort started uh, taking off.
1: Yeah, that's extraordinary. I guess some of it was invested in GameStop shares as well. <laughs> Let me finish off with mine, which is not exactly a household item, although the house that I live in is actually <laughs> built of it. It is a brick. And, and this will be easy for Rachina, There was a time when these things were made in abundance and then there was a shortage
2: Hmm, I wish you hadn't said it would be easy for me. <laughs> I don't...
1: Hmm. Think of how you
3: make bricks in a kiln. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is getting you
2: think we're too is clever. There
3: shortages of sand around the world is that part of? No, no, no. It's not
1: sand. Uh, you're getting close, but uh, if you can think of glass or ceramics or steel, it suddenly became incredibly expensive to make all these things. Can you remember why that was?
2: Gas prices going up? Yes, there
1: you got it. <laughs> yes.
2: It took me It took me a while to get there. <laughs> yes. Well, Henry, you wrote plenty about this <laughs> as it was happening. Yes, that's
1: right. High demand in China and shortage of supplies coming from Russia, lack of storage f- space in, in the UK and elsewhere. And that, the reason why I used the word abundance was because, yes, it was a kind of, they always talked about the age of abundance in energy, you know, that there was just a sort of a massive amount to tap. Um, And suddenly, it became clear that there had been quite a lot of underinvestment. And as the bounce back came, then prices of all those fossil fuels suddenly went ballistic. Prices have have come off again in the last few months. But certainly, that was the the energy crunch was a uh, significant part of the latter half of the year. Okay, final round. To bring 2021 to a close and to give us all the courage to face whatever 2022 may bring, I have one parting request for you all a prediction. You have a pretty impressive record to beat. Our festive fortune tellers did remarkably well last year. Simon, you predicted that fewer than a dozen countries would see negative growth in 2021 with so much pent-up energy waiting to expand. Now, you told us at the beginning of the show that you weren't too, too happy about your predictions. How did they work out?
3: Well, put in that light, it sounds pretty good. I, I do think one of my underlying views was that the pandemic would be more or less sorted out by now, which clearly uh, should, have, should have spoken to an epidemiologist for that one. <laughs> exactly.
1: Our Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fullwood, foresaw 2021 as being the year of the deal, with massive M&A as companies spent their war chests. Well, Bain is now reporting that 2021 saw the highest M&A deal value in history, but that SPAC, another word of the year, I guess, and VC deals grew up to five times faster than even that. And then our supernaturally farsighted business affairs editor, Patrick Fowles, predicted the year of the bottleneck, which sadly we know to have been the case. And I, for my sins, said that 5G would finally have its moment. And it might do with the metaverse. So as 2022 hoves into view, what should we be on the lookout for in the coming 12 months? Mike, let's start with you.
4: Yes, I think uh, Japan is due for a sort of medium-sized economic boom that's based on a couple of things uh japan's recovery economically from the pandemic has been a little bit slower than other places and they have a new prime minister in mr Kishida, who will pursue i think the fiscal stimulus that japan has been lacking for quite a while um we'll see how much of that actually comes off these things sometimes disappoint but i think really significantly outperforming expectations from japan would, would,
3: would a medium-sized economic boom mean growth of sort of 1.2 percent mike
4: exactly i think we might even. And get to sort of 1.3 1.4 percent if we're really really lucky you know inflation at half a percent something like that.
3: and will the prime minister
1: be there at the end of the year to to uh welcome it
4: that's a that's a little bit more difficult
3: betting that a japanese prime minister is going to last more than six months is a, is a difficult one we'll see simon how about you uh well so my my uh sort of concrete prediction of of 2022 is that uh, i think the unemployment rate in the u.s is going to decline to 3.5 percent, flirting with a seven-decade low. Um, so I think it's easy to be caught up with the supply chain problems, with inflation running at you know multi-decade highs, uh, and to miss part of the bigger picture, which is that the recovery has just been incredibly strong. The momentum for it remains very, very robust. Right now, of course, companies are dealing with labor shortages. You know, more and more people are going to come off the sidelines into the labor market, but the unemployment rate has already registered its steepest fall ever post a, a recession. And that's that's going to continue on into next year. Great. Rachana?
2: Well, I'm going to take my lead from Patrick Fowles' prediction last year and say that uh, we're going to see the uncorking of the bottleneck in 2022 for two reasons. One is that uh, companies uh, have been doing some investment in sort of expanding supply capacity and some of that will start to come on stream next year. But also, one big reason for bottlenecks this year has has just been the huge increase in demand for goods, especially in America. And as we start to see people buying services again, going out and about a bit more, obviously this depends on variants of COVID, we might start to see a bit of a rebalancing away from exports and uh, demands for space on shipping containers and so on. So I would say that by this time next year, we'll probably find ourselves swimming in all sorts of goods that we're sort of yearning for this year.
1: (laughs) chips or potato crisps both hopefully <laughs> well carrying on from that I think my prediction for next year is uh, is in the um, same optimistic vein I predict that we're going to spend more time in the office next year and my hope is that This time next year, we'll be able to host the Money Talks Christmas Unquiz in the studio, in the office, not remotely, as we're doing at the moment.
4: It's the more optimistic version than thinking that a a new variant for each Christmas is now the British thing. Every December,
3: we've got to have one. I'm all for one for for doing the unquiz quiz in person. I do worry that if we had a bit of champagne to fuel this on, it could prove to be uh, (laughs) uh, much more enjoyable, but potentially disastrous. And we'd never stop talking, exactly.
1: Okay, to find out if our predictions can match or even beat last year's record, you'll all need to keep listening to Money Talks in 2022. We'll see you there. A round of applause for our panelists Mike Bird, Simon Rabinovich and Rachna Shambhog. Thank you all for joining us. Happy holidays.
4: Thanks everyone.
0: Thanks Thank you. Henry. Merry,
4: Merry Christmas. Christmas. Thanks
1: guys. And our thanks also to the producer Amika Shortina Nolan and the series editor Sandra Schmuele. If you have it in your heart to give us a gift, All we want for Christmas is a review and a rating on your favourite podcast app. From all of us here at Money Talks, thank you all so much for listening this year. And here's to 2022. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist.
4: Hooray! That was great. (laughs) See you next year. (laughs)